Well, good morning again. Um, so this morning, um, or this Sunday and next Sunday, we are going to be looking at the book of Leviticus. I know, probably not what you were expecting today or really any Sunday. Um, but I want to take a moment first to address why I wanted to look at Leviticus today. And then we're going to read from Leviticus 16. So Leviticus is this book where many of us, as we start like our annual Bible reading plan, that's where we trail off. That's where we get derailed. And we either just trek through it reading quickly and don't really have the slightest clue what to do with it, or we just skip it and go, you know what, let's go to Deuteronomy, and then uh, that doesn't work out so well, and then we eventually just flip to something in the New Testament, because we just have such a hard time really knowing what to do with this book. And then we try to tell ourselves, well, maybe next year I'll do it. Maybe next year I can understand it a little better. But in the cases where if we do press on and we read through the book and we try to just really read, even if we don't know what to do, we get to texts like Leviticus 13, which is entirely devoted to discerning the different kinds of leprosy. And we wonder, what do we do with this? How does this apply to me? And my wife's a medical professional, so it might apply to her a little more than the rest of us, but even then not so much because that's completely outside of her field of practice. Or we get to the grain and the guilt offerings and the sacrifices and we're just completely at a loss. Or we get to Leviticus 19 and we wonder, why on earth can I not eat bacon-wrapped shrimp? And then we wonder, why can't I wear mixed linens? What's wrong with polyester? And it gets really confusing. We find ourselves reading the book of Leviticus like a man searching for water in the desert only to find sand. As we search, we're wondering, what on earth am I supposed to do with this? How is this useful to me on this side of the cross? Where is Jesus in Leviticus? So the Apostle Paul tells Timothy and us in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, or for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If what Paul says is true here, then it must also be true of the book of Leviticus. Reading the book of Leviticus to many of us is often very similar to my mom watching a superhero movie. Um, in 2019, a huge blockbuster film came out. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Uh, the movie is called Avengers Endgame. Major movie, broke all sorts of records. If you're not familiar, this movie was the culmination of 11 years of films, 23 different films throughout this. Uh, this movie was part two of an incredibly ambitious crossover epic, and it concluded a major chapter of the story they were telling in this cinematic universe, as they've called it. And while you don't need to see all 23 of those films to understand what's going on, it really helps significantly to see the movie before it, um, because this movie Endgame was a sequel to the predecessor, which was Infinity War, and I promise this whole illustration is not about this movie, so if you haven't seen it, you shouldn't be lost. Um, but soon after it came out, I was on the phone with my mom, who lives in St. Louis, and my sister's there as well, um, and she told me that she saw this movie with her oldest nephew, or sorry, my oldest nephew, her oldest grandson, uh, Patrick. And my first response in hearing her say this was, wait, have you seen any of these movies? Do you even know what's going on? And I knew she'd seen at least one because I'd gone to the theater with her, but that was like the first one in 2008, so I figured she was probably a bit lost. Uh, and interestingly enough, my nephew actually asked the same question. If I recall the story correctly, my nephew was staying with my mom for a day, uh, I think it was a Friday, and at some point she asked what he wanted to do, and he said, Grandma, can we go see a movie? And she asked which movie, just to make sure that it was something appropriate, and 
He told her what it was. So she said yes. And so they began looking up times, and they determined to go, and they were ready and set to go. And then at some point, my nephew finds out that she hadn't seen the movie before it and goes, wait, Grandma, you can't see this movie because you don't have the slightest clue what's going on. And so then they stayed at her house that evening. They watched the first movie, and then the next day they went and saw the second movie. And that's, to many of us, what Leviticus is. It often feels like somebody who sits down to watch a movie, watches the whole thing, and has no idea what's going on, because unbeknownst to them, they watched a sequel. They watched something completely out of context, and while they may have been entertained, it didn't make any sense. Similarly, if we read Leviticus without any understanding of the surrounding context, we will be just as confused if not more so than if we watched a movie like Avengers Endgame without seeing its predecessor, Infinity War. Or if you're not familiar with those movies at all, you could easily just put in Star Wars or uh, missing the first few episodes of a TV show, whatever it might be. And so while Leviticus is a separate book on its own, it still has a context. It's still part of the first five books of the Old Testament, the, blo- the books of Moses, the Torah, or the um, Pentateuch. It's a book of laws written to the Israelite people who had just come out of Egyptian slavery and they were given instructions on how to be holy, how to inhabit the land of Canaan, and how to live life. And so one of the driving points of the entire book of Leviticus and the Old Testament law, Leviticus as well as Deuteronomy and the law that shows up in Exodus as well, is that God is holy and man is not. And because of this, we don't just get to come to God on our own terms. We don't get to just come to God however we please. Instead, we have to adhere to what he has commanded and what he has said in his law. So when you think of Leviticus, the idea of holiness should be the key. That is the overwhelming theme of the book of Leviticus. Specifically, you see reported, or repeated twice in the book of Leviticus, be holy for the Lord your God is holy, which is also picked up quite a bit in the New Testament as well. And so the idea of Leviticus is what it looks like for these people to be holy in the midst of pagan nations, what it looks like for them to be set apart and to strive to look more like the Lord their God. And the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, and I'll be reading it in just a moment, is Leviticus 16. It is the description of one of the most significant days in the Old Testament, one of the most significant days in the Hebrew calendar. It's a day that was marked by a fast. It's a day that was a Sabbath day, meaning all work was forbidden. All eating was forbidden. It was the high holy day of the Old Testament. Let's go ahead and take a moment and read that. I'll be starting Leviticus 16, 1 through 34. So it's a little bit of a longer text, but it's a very confusing text as well. So verse 1, the Lord said to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bowl from the herd for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and have, and shall have the holy, or have, excuse me, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bowl as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and another lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. 
Aaron shall present the bowl as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bowl as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and shall bring it inside the veil, and shall put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some blood of the bowl and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bowl, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of the meeting from the time that he enters to make atonement in the holy place, until he comes out and has made atonement for himself, and for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, shall cleanse it and consecrate it from uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting at the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat free, let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was bought or whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside of the camp. Their sin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. I'm going to pause there, and I'm going to pick up in just a moment um, from 29 to 34. So this day is the day that's known by Jews as Yom Kippur, or as we would know it more familiarly, the Day of Atonement, which is just literally a translation of Yom Kippur. This is one of the day, this is the one day of the year that the high priest would enter into the innermost chamber of the temple following the construction of the temple, or the holy place in the tabernacle where they were still wandering about in the wilderness up until the time that the temple was constructed. So this is that only day that the high priest was permitted to enter into that. And he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation of Israel to atone for their sin. And so to give an idea of how significant this day, was, this day is, I'm actually going to start at the end of this text, which I'm going to read in just a moment. Um, I know that it's already weird enough that I'm preaching from Leviticus, so why not just address the text out of order? Um, so in verses 29 through 31, and it should be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And so we see in verse 29, the date is prescribed to be celebrated on the 10th day of the seventh month of every year. It is expressed as being a statute forever. The Hebrew calendar is different than ours, so 
when you hear seventh month, tenth day, that's not this upcoming Saturday. Um, in the Hebrew calendar, it actually ends up being September 15th for us in 2021. For the people of Israel, it was a day devoted to fasting, to self-denial, um, and to Sabbath, and to rest. But not only the people of Israel this applied to. This applied to everybody who was in that nation. The native and the sojourner who was wandering through the land were all required to keep this. So everything was shut down. This was, in a sense, everything that was feared about at the beginning of the coronavirus. A lot of people worried everything was going to close down, we'd have nothing to do. But this is actually what they did every year. There was no work, there was no eating, there was no, I mean, obviously they didn't have businesses in the same sense we did, but there was no businesses open. There was nothing being done at all. There's a very specific reason for this, is if the high priest was going in to atone for sins, anything that could be done to prevent them from sinning more on that day was imperative. If they didn't eat, they didn't work, and they didn't indulge in anything, it would be much less likely that they would sin. Specifically on a day that was devoted to holiness and to atoning for sins. And then I want to skip down to, or not skip down, go ahead and read the rest of the text, 32 to 34. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the, Lord, or as the Lord had commanded Moses. So 32 to 34 kind of give us a real overarching summary for what's going on in this day. Um, and there's another text, however, where this is mentioned, and that's Leviticus 23, verses 29 to 30. Um, the whole part is 26 to 30, but I'm going to read 29 to 30. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day should be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. So the command is given that anyone who is not afflicted shall be cut off. And anyone who does any work, the Lord shall destroy. That should give us a really significant look into how important this day was. That anybody who broke any idea or any semblance of work the Lord will destroy. Anyone who is not afflicted, and the idea for afflicted here was generally associated with fasting or just any denial of self, really. And so any of that, that person's cut off. Anybody who took this day lightly or didn't really focus on what the day was for would be removed from those people. And so now that we've address the significance of this day. Let's go back to the beginning and look at another question. The, other, the, the questions that I'm going to answer through the rest of this sermon are, what is the Day of Atonement? Why did they have to observe this practice? And finally, if this is a statute forever, why do we as Christians not celebrate this day? So in verse 1, We see the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And so that gives us kind of the why it has to happen here, why it has to happen in Leviticus 16. And this draws us back to Leviticus 10, actually. So in Leviticus 10, you have um, Aaron's son, so Aaron being the high priest, you have his sons, and the priesthood continued through blood, through family. So the sons of the priests became priests as well. Um, in Leviticus 10.1, Now Adam and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took, each took his censer and put it on fire and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So this is the context here. This is the idea. This has to happen because Nadab and Abihu came and they decided to offer a sacrifice on their own terms as unauthorized fire. They wanted to worship God how they felt necessary. They wanted to worship God in the ways they thought was right. 
And that's a big problem. And so we see in Leviticus 9, immediately before that, verse 24, that Aaron offers a sacrifice and it's accepted. And then Leviticus 10, following that, they offer a different sacrifice and under terms that they weren't commanded to do, and it's not accepted. And the fire that consumes Aaron's sacrifice, saying that it was accepted, is the same fire that consumes his sons for worshiping falsely. So their sin defiles the tent of meeting. And for the result of this, that is why the Day of Atonement is necessary at this time in this text. So for this reason, God speaks to Moses and tells him to tell his brother Aaron on how to atone for the uncleanness in their camp. And so in these instructions, Aaron's told that he is not permitted to enter this holy place on any other day. He's not to step inside this veil under any other circumstance aside from this day. And if he does, he will die. So, but even before he enters, he has to follow a meticulous set of instructions. The veil that's mentioned here, um, it's mentioned quite a few times throughout Scripture. It is the veil that prevented anyone from entering into that holy place. It's present in the temple. It was a veil that kept anybody from entering into the presence of God. It's what separated that veil from the rest of the area. So within the tabernacle, you had an outer court, and then you had that inner court. Within the temple, you have another one as well. And so this veil is the dividing point. In one of Haddon's books, actually, we have for him, called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, it refers to this veil as a giant keep-out sign which I think is a really helpful illustration, actually. Yet Aaron has to enter in a certain manner. In verse 3, he's told to come with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then in verse 4, he's told he has to dress a certain way. He has to remove his ornate priestly clothing, and then he has to bathe, and then he puts on a comparatively bland clothing. Or as um, the Puritan Andrew Bonner describes it, puts on pure but unadorned attire. So verses 3, 6, and 11 all speak of the same bowl. In verse 3, Aaron's told to take it. In verse 6, Aaron's told what to do with it. And in verse 11, he's told to kill it. And that it's a sin off- and to use it as a sin offering. So that's Aaron shall present the bowl as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. In verse 5, Aaron's told to take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats, one for a sin offering, or for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. In verse 7, he takes those goats from verse 5. He places them outside the tent of meeting. These two goats are In a sense, they're kind of the star of the show, but that's also a little morbid, so maybe not the best idea, but they are the main sacrifice of this ceremony. And so what Aaron does here is he casts lots over the goats, one lot for the Lord, another for Azazel. That whole sentence is really confusing, so let me unpack that a little. And so lots are kind of confusing here. Um, A lot of times... We can almost think of them as gambling, but that's not quite what's going on. One commentator states they were something like rolling die um, with black sides and white sides. Another um, postulates that it's similar to drawing straws. Um, However, others have cited a later tradition that would have developed from Mishnah um, that stated that lots were cast into a box. Um, Think of Yahtzee, where you get the dice and you put them in the cup and you cover it up and you shake them and they come out that way. That's probably a more similar picture. And so as they cast the lots out of this box, one was labeled for the Lord, one was labeled for Azazel. And so it may seem like a game of chance. The actual idea of what's being conveyed here is that it's the Lord who's choosing which goat is for himself and which one is for Azazel. And the idea of Azazel here is also a little confusing. Because some, and you'll even see this probably in your footnotes of your Bible, uh, a lot of times it'll say something along the lines of, actually I have it right here, the meaning of Azazel is uncertain, possibly the name of a place or a demon, traditionally a scapegoat. So some have suggested that it's referring to the place where the goat's being sent. 
Others have suggested that it could be a demon, but as one commentator, Mark Rooker points, Rooker, points out, there's no place in Scripture where Satan or demons provide any atoning function. So I think that's quite unlikely that it's a demon. However, it's most likely that it means that it's designated as a scapegoat. And this is going to be in agreement, in agreement with the overall consensus of church history. This is what is seen from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. This is what's seen in the Latin Vulgate. This is what's seen and even was weakened in English. This goes back to William Tyndale in the 1500s. So overwhelmingly, Christians have believed scapegoat is probably the idea that's getting, um, that's coming across here rather than it being for a demon or something. Um, the goat for the Lord is being offered as a sin offering, whereas the goat for Azazel has a very different role. It's presented before the Lord alive in order that it might be sent into the wilderness as a scapegoat. As we get on, I'll kind of unpack what's meant by scapegoat here. And then as I mentioned a moment ago, in verse 11, the bull, the bull from verse 6 is now killed. And following that, we have the role of the bowl kind of playing a bit more of a significance because of what it will do in verses 12 through 14. And I'm actually going to read from a commentary here from Puritan Andrew Bonner um, because he describes it really well. He, Aaron, takes the sin offering bowl, slays it on the altar, and pours out its blood. With the blood, he fills one of the bowls of the altar. Then, when this in one hand... He places in the other a pan of live coals from the very same altar, out of the very same flames that he had fed upon his sacrifice. And he sprinkles a handful of incense, whose sweet fragrance instantly fills the courts of the Lord's house. What a glorious scene for sinners. The sinner's offering is accepted. The sweet savor breathes over it and ascends to heaven. The very fire that preyed upon the bowl till it was consumed into ashes is that which causes this fragrance to be felt. The very righteousness that sought for an atonement ere it could forgive delights to proclaim that the law is magnified. Jehovah glorified, the sinner justified. The holy law, having met its requirements, exalts in declaring the sinner free. The fire that consumes the bowl from his sin offering is that which fills the holy place with fragrance. The incense also makes the room cloudy, um, which is pretty significant because it actually clouds Aaron's vision. It prevents him from seeing the Lord clearly. If you think of Moses in um, the mountain where he says to the Lord, show me your glory, and the Lord responds with, if I do, you will die. It's the same kind of idea that if Aaron were to see the Lord clearly here, he would die. So that fragrance creates a cloud within the most holy place to prevent Aaron from being able to see clearly. So it's actually protecting Aaron and saving his life in that. And yet clouds, and this is a bit of an aside, but clouds have a strong, overwhelming connection with the presence of God in the, in the Old and the New Testament. We see clouds frequently in the Bible as a representation of the presence of God. Specifically, as you think of something like um, Jesus' baptism as the clouds are ripped open, or as you think of the transfiguration as there's clouds there as well, um, and it's communicating the presence of God. And so this idea of a cloud here is still very much connected and tied with that idea. But then in verse 15, the focus shifts to these two goats that I mentioned are kind of the main part of the sacrifice. This first goat... Then he shall kill the goat as a sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. <laughs> this is a goat that is designated for the sin offering as he, as he did with the blood of the bull. Aaron sprinkles the blood of the goat over the mercy seat and on the front of the mercy seat. And this is what makes atonement for the holy place. So this specifically applies to the holy place. And in verse 16 gives us the why we've been looking for. It's because of the uncleanness of the people and because of their transgressions, 
all their sins. So the picture of what is being communicated with the first goat is that the holy place is being cleansed of the sins of the people. And at this time, only the high priest can be in the tent. If another person were to enter, it would bring in uncleanness. Verses 17 and 19 give us a summary statement of the events so far. And that's, no one may enter the tent of meeting from the time and he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house from all of the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out of the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So after he's made atonement for the holy place with his first goat, then the second goat comes in. The scapegoat comes into the place. So in verse 20, we see this goat is presented alive. Aaron lays both hands on the head of the live goat, and he confesses all of the iniquities of the people, all of their transgressions, all of their sins. The repetition here that we see of um, iniquities, transgressions, sins, they all have the same sort of idea there. Um, And the over, the overwhelming idea here is that it's the complete casting off of the sins of the people of Israel. The goat in verse 22 bears the sins of the people of Israel and then he's sent away. In some tradition, uh, the goat was followed and thrown off a cliff so he couldn't return, which is kind of crazy, but it met the symbolism and kept of the idea of these sins being cast as far away from Israel as possible. The goat runs off into the wilderness The sins of the people have been cast far from them. And then the conclusion of the the ceremony occurs, which further emphasizes the role of holiness here and the need for cleanliness. Aaron removes the linen garments that that he wore during the sacrifice. Then he bathes again and offers additional burnt offering for himself and for the people. The one who lets the scapegoat go, another person, uh, he has to bathe before he can return to the camp. And then the final step is that the goat and the bull from the offerings before must be removed from the camp. And those who remove them, they must also bathe. Anything that was involved in the offering is removed from the camp. Anything that was involved at all has been removed. It has no place. All signs and evidence of sin being within the camp have now been cast out entirely from the camp. So, to answer the question, kind of in short, is what is the Day of Atonement here in Leviticus 16? It's a certain day, the tenth day of the seventh month, when a certain person, Aaron, the high priest, has to come before God in a certain attire, holy garments, and under certain requirements, sacrifices, to perform a certain act, purification of the mercy seat and atonement of sin, after the Lord has invited him to do it on behalf of a certain people. Why? Because they were a sinful, unholy people who needed to be made holy for a thrice holy God to remain dwelling within their midst. Because we know God can have nothing to do with sin. Um, Elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told your sins have made a separation between you and your God. God hates sin and demands holiness of his people. And that is why this day is necessary for the Jewish people. However, looking at the number of sacrifices in this text would likely cause any animal lover or animal rights activist to shudder. The sacrifice of animals is definitely not for the weak stomach. And here's the thing, that's the point there's sort of a sense in which maybe we should look at this text more like a member of PETA would, um, or some sort of animal rights activist would look at. When we think of animal sacrifices, we shouldn't be okay with them. We should be uncomfortable. But we should not be more disgusted by the shedding of an animal's blood here than we are our own sin. And it's the same exact thing with Jesus. We should never be more disgusted by the cross than we are our sin because they are connected. 
The reason for why these sacrifices were required are because of sin. And it was because of our sin that Christ was crucified. So when we find ourselves desiring sin, we should remember what our redemption cost us. For the Jews, it costs the life of all sorts of animals. For us, it cost the life of Jesus, the only perfect, sinless person to ever live, Jesus incarnate. In the sacrificial system, the picture was being conveyed is that which happened to this animal is that which should have happened to me. The idea is that the bull and the goat, those that were sacrificed, that is what we deserve for our sins. But God in his infinite mercy saw fit to look on this animal and pardon those people for the time being. And even more so for us in Christ. We even just sang this a moment ago. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free that God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. The point of the numerous sacrifices here demonstrates that there should be no doubt that the sin of the people here had been removed. Additionally, you may also be thinking this is really intricate and it's really complicated. And it is. It absolutely is. It's really confusing and it's really hard to kind of keep track of what's going on here. And I'm sure a few of you have gotten lost in all of what I just said a moment ago as well. It's it is a very complicated process for how this day works. And it emphatically demonstrates that we cannot, under any circumstances, come to God on our own terms. We do not get to define our relationship with God. An illustration of this I've seen quite frequently. When I was in my first semester of seminary, I worked um, at Babies R Us, actually. Um, I was not married at the time, did not have any kids, Um, But because of that, I know more about car seats than probably anybody, and I'm willing to defend that. Um, But one evening as I was closing, one of my uh, other team members, uh, we were all clocking out, and I was having a discussion with a coworker, and don't entirely remember what happened or how it came up, but I mentioned that I was in seminary, and that my end goal was to be prepared to be called to pastor a church. Uh, My coworker responded with a somewhat dismissive comment, saying something like, oh yeah, that's cool, yeah, um... I have this agreement with God, I do my best, and he'll let me in. I'm not really a religious type, but that's just, that's just how I live my life. And I'm embarrassed to say that I did not respond with an incredible gospel-centered retort that led him to repentance and faith. Honestly, at the time, I didn't know what to say. Again, it was my first semester of seminary. Whether that's an excuse or not, I don't know. Um, but now I realize how incredibly foolish that response was for him him. Because even if somehow we were granted the ability to, grant, to decide the terms by which we come to God, and if that's the best we could come up with, that we do our best and we come in, it's a raw deal. It's a bad, bad deal. And Because this, this text shows us very clearly that we do not come to God on our own terms. If we did, he wouldn't be God. We would. We would be determining that relationship. We would be deciding what was appropriate. And that's not how this works. But second, the second reason for why this idea is fundamentally flawed, and here's the thing, I'm sure we've all heard this in some way or another from someone. We don't do our best. We'll pretend that we do. We'll say that we do, but we don't. It's not just that we sin, it's that we love our sin. We enjoy sin, especially outside of Christ. And simply trying to do our best just isn't good enough. Because a holy, righteous God demands perfection. Trying to do our best and failing isn't enough before a righteous and holy God. Because our best isn't good enough. Which is why we need someone else's best. We need God himself. And that's what leads us to this final question here. Which is, if this is a statute forever, why do we as Christians not celebrate this day? 
Is it not actually a statute forever then? Just a moment. And the reason for why we don't celebrate it is because we have something better. One of the main aspects of the book of Hebrews is to show us that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. Hebrews shows us that Jesus is the mediator and guarantor of a new and better covenant. The Day of Atonement is ultimately a shadow of what we would see to come in Jesus. And there's one, um, a really great description of this idea of shadows and how they work, even though this is a bit of a aside, is there's a YouTube video, oddly enough, from a uh, group called Lutheran Satire, and it's, their kind of thing is teaching the faith by making fun of stuff. Um, and in one video, they explain that the reason why things like this are a shadow is they use the illustration of saying that much like if you go to a concert and you, there's a poster putting up before the event, but after the event has occurred, you don't put posters up. You don't keep them up because the event has already occurred. Um, maybe another idea is that in marriage, you don't continue to celebrate your engagement after you've been married. You may think of, oh yeah, this is the day I got engaged and celebrate that, but you don't tell people you're engaged after you're married because marriage is way better than engagement. Um, engagement is not fun. I'm, I'm not sure how many of you remember your engagement, but marriage is much better than being engaged. And it's the same sort of idea here. Jesus is much better than the shadows that pointed us to him. In the Old Testament Day of Atonement, one goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people and another goat was sent off into the wilderness, taking away the sins of the people. And so in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14... We read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So resoundingly, Jesus is better. And then next chapter in, in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So though this was supposed to be a statute forever, Jesus, the great high priest, a priest greater than Aaron, because Aaron died, and when Aaron died, he didn't walk out of the grave. But Jesus conquered death. After Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, and he walked out of that grave. He's a priest that's not subject to death because he has conquered death and declared victory over it. The Day of Atonement was a shadow of the good thing to come in Jesus. So on a certain day, Passover, a certain person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great high priest, dressed in a certain attire, having cast off his glorious state, but remaining God incarnate, took on flesh under certain requirements as a sinless Savior 
offered himself as an atoning sacrifice on the behalf of his sin, of a, on the behalf of a certain people, his elect. And on this day, the curtain that separated that most high holy place, or that most holy place, that the high priest could only pass through once a year, that curtain tore in half. And the curtain tore because Jesus provided atonement for his people for all time, not just for one year. Jesus' sacrifice does not need to be repeated like the day of atonement, but is sufficient for all of his people for all time. As Jesus took his last breath, that curtain tore from top to bottom. And Charles Spurgeon has this beautiful quote in which he says, the curtain tore from top to bottom to let the biggest of sinners in. The most holy place of the temple now became void. The curtain was no longer there to keep people out. The day of atonement was no longer necessary because Jesus provided an atoning sacrifice that was greater than the day of atonement. It was sufficient for all, for the Jew and for the Gentile, on the condition that they have faith in Jesus. And it didn't need to be repeated each year. I mentioned one of my son's books earlier and how it describes this curtain as a keep-out sign. And in the end of that book, it describes the tearing of the curtain as the keep-out sign being torn up. And the reason this picture is given is because in the death of Jesus, we're no longer given a barrier from God, but instead, God now dwells inside of his people. The keep-out sign has been removed. So what do we do with all of this? I mean, it's a beautiful day that wonderfully points us to Jesus. It wonderfully points us to the gospel. But is that it? You know, what do we do in response to all of that? And this isn't really a groundbreaking application but it's a very important one. First of all, is to trust in Jesus for the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice. Thinking about another well-known hymn, um, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. A beautiful hymn by Robert Lowry that just really wonderfully and simply proclaims us the gospel. And so ultimately, I would assume as we're in a church service that most of you have already trusted in Christ and know him as the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice. But if that's not you, that's something that's to consider today as sins have created a separation between us and God. We don't get to come to him on our terms, but we're subject to his terms. So following that, for those of us who are in Christ, what then? Stop sinning. I know that's an easy one. I know that's kind of the thing we all normally hope to live for. But remember how much your sin costs. We should never take our own sin lightly. But we should be reminded that each time we sin, that it costs Jesus his life. Remember the blood of Jesus. and Remember how precious his blood is. So how much does that gossip cost? How much does your lying cost? The lust or pornography or hatred or sexual sin, whatever form that might take, or whatever other sin that might be present in your life, whether it's holding a grudge or dishonoring your parents jealousy. You were bought with a price, and that price was very costly. The precious blood of Jesus was shed to bring atonement for Jesus' people. To pick up on what Paul says, do not force grace to increase because you love your sin more than you love Jesus. And as I mentioned, the overwhelming theme of the book of Leviticus is this idea of being holy, a theme that stretches far beyond just the Old Testament, a, stream that's, or a, a theme that's very key in the New Testament as well. And that's that central idea of Leviticus, to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And that is something that we should also seek to live for. We should seek to live 
as holy people. For the people of God, you are a redeemed people and you should act accordingly. Because in response to knowing Jesus, we should desire to live in a manner that glorifies him. And today, as we come to the end of our service, we'll be um, participating in the Lord's Supper, where we will be rejoicing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As we take one element, which is going to represent the body of Christ broken for us, and then following that, we'll take the juice, which recommend, which represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And it's a wonderful picture and reminder of the gospel. Let's pray as we conclude. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for giving us an inspired, infallible word that we can trust and we can read and we can know. I pray that today you would open our eyes to the wondrous things that are contained in your word, even though they can be difficult for us to understand and difficult for us to grasp, especially on this side of the cross. I pray that we would value and love and treasure your scriptures, that we would treasure the law as we read in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, that your law is just a blessing to your people. And I pray that we would love your word. I pray that we would love the scriptures, and I pray that we would constantly be pointed to Christ in them, even when the scriptures are difficult, even when they seem so far removed from us. And I pray that we would rejoice in Christ, knowing that he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve to die. But death couldn't hold him. And we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for Jesus and what he's done for us. We're also thankful for where we live and as we leave here and celebrate our country in some form or another. I pray that we would be good and faithful citizens who do well to live holy, gospel-centered lives among our community, that we would share the gospel with others, but we'd also live holy lives so that others might see our good deeds and glorify you, glorify you in heaven. But I also pray that we would seek to call our country to repentance where necessary as we mourn the abandonment of your scriptures in our world. I pray that we would continue to boldly proclaim the gospel among those who are perishing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.